Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Before we get going, as you likely know, Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was found guilty on all three charges in the murder trial of George Floyd. It's been almost a year since George Floyd's death sparked protests around the country, and on last Thursday's podcast, we discussed how views of police reform and the Black Lives Matter movement have changed since then. If you missed that podcast, I'd encourage you to go check it out. Today, we're going to talk about religion in America and what the declining number of religiously affiliated Americans tells us about our society and politics. In a recent Gallup survey, the number of Americans who belong to a church, mosque, or synagogue became a minority for the first time since tracking began. Just 20 years ago, 70% of Americans belonged to one of those houses of worship. Today, it's 47%. While that does not mean that a majority of Americans are not religious, the number of religiously unaffiliated Americans has also been increasing and now matches the numbers who are either evangelical or Catholic. Religion plays an important role in how people view the world, identify politically, and vote. And so here with me to discuss what these trends mean are senior politics writer Perry Bacon Jr. Hey, Perry. Good to see you, Galen. Also here with us is political science professor at Eastern Illinois University, Ryan Burge. He is also a pastor in the American Baptist Church and recently wrote a book on religiously unaffiliated Americans called The Nuns, Where They Came From, Who They Are, and Where They Are Going. And of course, that's nuns as in N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. But welcome, Ryan. Thanks for joining the show today. Thanks so much for having me on, Galen. So we have a lot to discuss, but to set the context for this conversation— How significant is religious identification for determining political behavior? That's obviously incredibly complicated, right? Because religion interacts with race, which interacts with age, which interacts with rural versus urban. What we do know is that there's identifiable patterns in the American electorate when it comes to religion. In some ways, what we're seeing is political polarization is sort of leaked into religious polarization. And on one side, we've got what my book's about, the nuns, which are growing rapidly, but also are becoming a more and more central part of the Democratic Party. The coalition that votes for Democrats is becoming a bigger share of nuns every single year. And on the other side, we've got Christians, especially white Christians, are a core part of the Republican Party. Here's a couple stats. In 2018, 51% of Americans identified as white and Christian. It was 75% of Republicans are white and Christian, and 38% of Democrats are white and Christian. So what we're really seeing is we're seeing sort of this religious divide leak into the political divide. Now, which one caused the other, obviously, is almost impossible to figure out. But it does seem like in America, more and more people are coming to understand to be religious, especially to be white and religious, is to be a conservative or Republican. And to be religiously unaffiliated is to be a Democrat and a liberal. Yeah, Perry, you and Ryan recently wrote about this for the website, and you spent a lot of time looking at surveys and talking to Americans How do you conceptualize the role that religion plays in how Americans view politics in the world? So I think Ryan said about a lot of what's happening. The key thing I would say is black religious people tend to be very democratic. So the one thing that's very distinct is, as he said, among white people that tends to be more religiosity, tends to go along with more conservatism. Among African-Americans, that's not the same pattern. Latino patterns are a little bit more complicated. So I want to defer to Ryan. Talk about Latinos a little bit in those patterns. Yeah, so Latino Protestants in 2020 were 50-50, like literally split right down the middle. But Latino Catholics are a whole different story. They were two to one 
for Joe Biden in 2020, which tells you, you know, for them, the type of Christian you are actually matters a lot because American Protestantism has sort of become synonymous with American evangelicalism, which is becoming more and more conservative as every year passes. But a lot of Hispanic Catholics come from a tradition that's more about liberation theology. Let's say it has its roots in Central and South America, where the church is socialist in some ways and radical in some ways to the left. And so those ideas sort of come into the American ethos, especially in predominantly Hispanic Catholic churches. So what we're seeing really is we're seeing a divide even amongst the Hispanic community between Protestants who are 50-50, but if you look at just Hispanic evangelicals, they're about 65-35 or so with some third-party voting in there. But overall, what we're seeing is the Catholic vote, Hispanic vote is going to the left, but we're also seeing the Hispanic evangelical vote going to the right. So that's really an interesting community that's sort of fracturing, I think. But Perry's right about black Protestants. I think one of the most interesting problems facing the modern Democratic Party is that it's becoming a larger and larger the nuns, especially atheists and agnostics who are incredibly liberal, incredibly far to the left. But at the other side, one of the cores of the Democratic Party is black Protestants who a majority of them do not favor same-sex marriage and are not in favor of a lot of pro-choice programs. So how do you hold a coalition together when you have very far left nuns, but you also have a lot of pretty conservative black Protestants at the same time? I think that's a problem for them going forward. So how would you describe the different religious groups in America and perhaps by political identity? Really amongst Christians, you've got your evangelicals who are 80% Republican. They voted 80% for Donald Trump in 2020. But then you've got another group called mainline Protestants. And Perry and I wrote about this in the piece, which I think they're such an interesting group because they are like the United Methodist Church, the Episcopalians, United Church of Christ. They're the kind of church that used to be the largest church in America. In the 1970s, 30% of all Americans were mainline Protestant. Today, it's only 10%. So they're a group that traditionally was just slightly right of center, and today they're 50-50. They're literally split in half. Some are Republicans and some are Democrats, but the kind of Republicans they are are not evangelicals. They're more what I call country club Republicans, which means they want low taxes because a lot of them have high educations and high incomes, so they just want the government out of their lives. But they're cool with you smoking weed or you know whoever you want to marry or whatever. However, on economic issues, they want a small government. Now, Catholics are a really interesting story because we just talked about white Catholics are trending to the Republican side while Hispanic Catholics are trending to the other side, yet the Catholic Church in America is becoming more racially diverse. Then you've got a whole bunch of smaller religious traditions like Hindu, Mormon, Buddhist, Muslim, that are actually trending toward the Republicans, but together they don't really make up that big of a share and then, obviously, that we got the nuns, which is what we just talked about. And the nuns are growing rapidly. They were 22% of the population in 2008, and they're 34% of the population today. Over 40% of millennials and Gen Z identify as religiously unaffiliated, and they're growing rapidly. So that is the growing religious electorate that we need to be thinking about going forward is the nuns. They tend to vote. Atheist agnostics are 75% for the Democrats. The other group, which is really what the book's about, is a group called Nothing in Particular. They are not so liberal. They're actually in the middle of the political spectrum, but they make up 20% of all Americans. They're black, they're white, they're young, they're old. They have a couple things in common, but the big thing they have in common is they have low income and low education. And I think they're actually the swing vote in, in the modern religious electorate. And the other groups are pretty much locked in. They're not switching over time. The Nothing in Particular is where the election is going to be won and lost in the future, I think. This is zoning a little bit on what Ryan is getting at, is that maybe 10 or 15 years ago, if you talked about people who were non-religious, we were mostly thinking about white 
educated, liberal people. But now we're talking about the people who say they are not affiliated with a religious denomination is a third of Americans. So that means you're getting beyond just white, youngish liberals on the East Coast. There are more and more black people, particularly younger black people, more Latino people, particularly younger people, older people who are Democrats are moving away from church. So what you're getting is like, once you get to a third of Americans, you're hitting everybody to some extent. And what Ryan's book is really smart about and what I really learned from it is, as he said, is like this no religious block is one third of people. But atheists and agnostics are distinct from people who just say nothing in particular. Atheists and agnostics tend to have very defined views about religion. They sort of don't believe in it. They're a little bit hostile to it. They are skeptical of it. And those people are very educated, more male, very, very democratic. And then this nothing in particular group, which is much bigger. Atheists and agnostics are about 10% of Americans. This nothing in particular group is about 20% of Americans. And they're, they're more like they don't go to church anymore. Maybe their parents. But they're not going to say, I'm an atheist. I mean, they, they don't have these strong disbeliefs either. So they're not as educated. They're more racially diverse. One thing we mentioned in the piece was the Black Lives Matter movement is not religious itself. It just didn't come from the black church. But black non-religious people tend not to be atheists and agnostic. So it's black, nothing in particular, is someone who their parents went to church, their mother goes to church. So they're not anti-church. They're not, just not in church themselves. And that's different than an agnostic or an atheist person who might be kind of wary of church itself and kind of wary of religion. So it sounds like this agnostic atheist group, it's something that we're pretty familiar with in terms of American culture. It's been relatively visible for a while. But this nothing in particular, which may mean people who have maybe some vague religious views but don't feel drawn to like one particular religion, why is that community growing to the extent that it is? One of the possible explanations is people are just being more honest now than they used to be. You know, there's this thing we worry about in social science called social desirability bias. We know it well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is the idea you ask people on questions on a survey and they just lie to you. They tell you what they, they think you want to hear, not what actually is going on in their lives. And so for a long time, to be an American was to be a Christian. So if you were asked, you know, what are you? You would just say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Protestant, I'm a Catholic, whatever it is, even though you haven't been to church in decades or years at least, right? You have no real attachment to it. But what's happened over time is as it's become more socially acceptable to have no religious affiliation, instead of saying you're a Christian or a Catholic on a survey, you'll just say, you know what, you'll kind of shrug. And to me, that's what the nothing in particular category is. It's sort of the shrug category. It's I'm not opposed to religion, right? But I'm also not an atheist or agnostic either. If you look at things like church attendance, almost no atheist ever goes to church and very few agnostics ever go to church. But something like 30% of nothing in particular is actually go to church once a year or more. So they're not completely detached from religion. They just don't like the label that's attached to it. So, you know, when people ask, why are they growing so rapidly? I'm not entirely convinced they're growing. I'm just more convinced they're revealing themselves and being more honest with what they really are, which I think in some ways as a social scientist is great because we're seeing people for what they actually are now, not what they think they should be. So I think Perry's exactly right. And I think this is so key, like the education thing. I just did some analysis today on that. 47% of atheists have a college degree and 45% of agnostics. It's only about 21% of nothing in particulars. They're literally the least educated religious group in America today. And when it comes to economics, 60% of nothing in particulars make less than $50,000 a year when it's only 35% of atheists. I mean, when it 
comes to like where they are demographically, they could not be more different. And so to put them together into one group is really to sort of paper over not just small differences, but dramatic differences. And I think the way that parties need to start reaching out to these groups has to be completely different because what nothing in particular is want is not at all what atheists and agnostics want. A lot of nothing in particular is just want to make more money, higher minimum wage, maybe some universal health care. Atheists are worried more about things like racial issues or social issues because they make plenty of money. So I think the parties have not even come around to understanding what these groups need. And the nothing in particular is a group that needs a lot from the government, but is just not well equipped to organize to make that happen. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think when we look at some other countries or even other religions in the United States, as you mentioned, for example, we think of evangelicals as having a well-defined political identity. We oftentimes think of Jews as having a pretty well-defined political identity. In a country like France, there's a pretty well-defined political identity around secularism. Is that the case at all amongst non-religious Americans? The issue with America is we're generically religious. We still are generically religious, even though the fact that one third of us say we have no religious affiliation, we have what's called a civic religion in this country. So to be an American is to be religious. I think that's what separates us from Europe even today. And by the way, Europe is way more secular than we are. Even a country like Italy, 80% of people in Italy don't go to church once a week. I mean, here it's 30 or 40% of people are in church at least once a month or more. So we're still more religious than they are, but we're also culturally more religious than they are. You know, for instance, politicians in France or Germany or never say something like God bless France or God bless Germany. But in America, every politician, regardless of whether it was Donald Trump or Joe Biden or Barack Obama, would always end speeches by saying God bless America. And everyone would kind of go, yeah, you know, we have in God we trust in our money. We are just more of a generically Christian tradition. And I think that's actually one of the reasons why the atheist and agnostic numbers are so low in America, because there's a lot of bias against atheists in this country. If you actually ask them to rate people on a thermometer score from 100 being very warm and zero being very cold. I have data from 2012 that shows that Democrats rated atheists second from the bottom, only above the Tea Party in 2012. So it's not like the Democratic Party is even embracing atheism either. So there's still a lot of discrimination or prejudice that's built up in America against the atheist community. We talked a lot about the African-American community. Atheism in that community is is almost non-existent. Yeah, the numbers just show very low numbers of black people say that they're atheist and various shows those that they're agnostic as well. And I think even the Democratic Party, you can tell that secularism is not that strong because Joe Biden talks about his faith every 10 seconds. So it's like even in the Democratic Party, like you can tell – Obama, I'm not sure how much he went to church. He definitely emphasized his Christianity. Biden does practice regularly. Donald Trump was not someone who appears to go to church a lot, but played that up during his campaign. So I think, as Ryan said, right now, I think if one party had a leader who was openly non-Christian or openly non-religious, that might even increase these numbers further in terms of secularism. Because I think right now we have a I'm not that religious identity is okay, but the sort of I am avowedly a religious, not religious is not something that's very strong in the culture. But I think if you had one famous politician who made that more acceptable, it might change that. So we were saying earlier that in part, this may be that people are being increasingly honest with pollsters and these surveys as it becomes more culturally acceptable to not be associated with a religion, even if it's still not totally culturally acceptable to be atheist. At the same time, we are seeing a change in behavior, though. It's not just what they're telling pollsters, right? Like, 
attendance at church or belonging to a church, synagogue, mosque. Like I started off this conversation by saying that those numbers are falling significantly. Why is that happening? Yeah, I think it's two things. The nuns, like we just talked about, rising rapidly. But there's this other thing going on in American religion I think is undercovered by a lot of folks who don't really get into the guts of what Protestant Christianity is about especially. And that is the fastest growing Protestant tradition in America today is non-denominational Protestant Christianity. And almost all these churches, by the way, are evangelical. You know, that means they're conservative theologically. A lot of them are conservative politically. They're growing very rapidly. These are the mega churches you see on TV on Sundays. They broadcast, you know, their, their services to cable news networks, a lot of them. But here's the thing. A lot of those non-denominational churches actually pride themselves on being everything that church is not is what they are. So like if there was membership in the Episcopal church, we don't have membership. A lot of these denominations have roles that date back decades and centuries Non-denominationals don't take a role at all. They don't have membership at all. They think it's an outdated and outmoded concept. And so what happens is people, instead of making strong ties to traditions, now they have really weak ties to traditions. And we actually are seeing a lot of non-denominationals move from one denomination to another, non-denominational back to denominational back and forth. But what's really interesting to me is it's not like these non-denominationals are adding new people. If you look at like denominational decline, the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest evangelical denomination in America, the largest denomination in America, period, almost everyone who left the Southern Baptist Convention over the last 30 years went and became non-denominational evangelical. So it's not like they're switching traditions, right? They're just moving from an old style of worship to a new style of worship. And from a demographic perspective, that's incredibly hard for us because if you don't keep a membership role, when we ask you, are you a member of a church? That's an anachronistic idea that dates back, you know, 50 years. And people go, no, I go every week, but I'm not a member anywhere. So I think it's the nuns driving that down. But I also think it's the idea of decentering membership as a religious concept is also driving that down as well and sort of masking the reality that some people are still religious. They're just not members anywhere. I mean, I do think people are going to church lists too. I think that is true. And I think we are now, I'm 40, so I'm in this sort of, you know, I'm just outside of millennial, I guess. No, I think you count as a millennial. I think technically I'm a millennial, but I don't think of myself. But anyway, fair enough, fair enough. Very <laughs> careful term. But anyway, so the old pattern was people maybe grew up in church, went to college in their 20s, maybe stopped going to church, and then had kids, went back to church. And the millennial generation, particularly, is now aged into buying a house having kids, but not going to church. And I think those, if you go to the Methodist churches or what have you around communities, what you find is the older people are dying, literally dying, and the younger people in their 40s, their kids are not going to church. So we've now entered a phase to where adulthood does no longer involve joining a church formally or a congregation. And I think that is a change. And I think just generally, and I see that more in black areas. And growing up, I knew a lot of, you know, I grew up in Kentucky. I knew a lot of white people didn't go to church. Now I know more black people who don't go to church either. So it's now grown this sort of disengagement. You know, we have a religion on Sunday. I think increasingly it's the NFL. And I think that is sort of where our society is changing in a certain way. Yeah. What Perry's talking about, we call it, there's actually a term for this in the literature called the life cycle effect. It's the idea that you're religious when you're a kid, you drift from religion in your twenties and you come back in your late twenties and early thirties when you have kids, get married, all those things. And if you look at the data now, that is not happening at all. Like every birth cohort now is less religious today than it was 10 years ago. I mean, every birth cohort, even people who were born in like the 1930s and 1940s, like there's this whole idea, people tell me like, oh, you get more religious as you get old because you're cramming for the final. 
right? Like you're making sure that if you die, you go, that's what someone told me once. But the reality is that's actually not true anymore either. Like people in their 60s and 70s are actually less religious today than they were like in 2008, even like at the same level, like 8% less religious today than they were 12 years ago. Now amongst younger generations, it's higher. It's around 11 or 12% have increased the nun rate, but it's secularization has hit everything and everybody and every racial group, every age, every region, every political party. We, you can't get away from it when it's 33% of the population. And I think we don't fully understand what it means for the future when only 60% of people consider themselves religious. How many churches are going to close? How many charities are going to close? What are we going to do for these social services these churches are doing right now in 20 years when they don't exist anymore? The society is going to look a lot different when we elect the first agnostic president or senator, because right now we haven't done that. We are on the precipice of significant cultural and religious change, and we're only beginning to understand what that really means. I want to talk about what that specifically means for our politics, but first... Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. You mentioned how our society is changing as it becomes less religious and churches, synagogues, mosques, houses of worship become less the center of our communities. What does that mean for politics? Like how much are these religious institutions structuring our politics and as they potentially fade, how will that change the way we do politics in America? So one thing you're seeing on the democratic side, I think, is that the old way to, you know, I'm John Kerry, I'm running president, I'm going to appeal to black people. And then here's my list of seven churches I'm going to go to on the, in Ohio or in whatever swing state. I think those days are over. I think that's one thing we can tell clearly is like the sort of black church is the organizing function for democratic activism, for democratic votes. You should go to that church too to talk to older people. And that's one way to mobilize them. But when you're talking about an under 50 black crowd, that's not the way to do that. If you're trying to meet the leaders of BLM, that's not the way to do that. So I think that's one place to go. On the Republican side, I think what you're seeing is a shift in that I think the number is something like one third of Republicans are white or evangelical Christians. Is that right, Ryan? Something like one yes, third. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. So the number yep. you we think of evangelicals as being the Republican Party, but most Republican voters are not evangelical, and increasing numbers of Republican voters are not religious at all. It's still a small number, but it's a it's a number that's growing. So I think the Republican Party, if you look at it closely, is becoming a little less the Christian right and a little bit more anti-wokeism or like anti-identity politics or kind of cultural conservatism that's a bit broader than just religion. Like I said, George W. Bush was really a very religious person. Trump was not. Trump sort of appealed to religious vote. The evangelical base is both big enough to where the Republican Party can't afford to ignore it. 
But I think the idea that the Republicans are more focused on trans issues than, say, gay marriage. The number of trans Americans is fairly small. The number of gay Americans is very is fairly large. So they have to change the issues a little bit. So I just think the evangelical right, as it was organized you know, a couple of decades ago, is not as powerful. And therefore, it has to move to different issues and kind of smaller. And I think the Republican Party would be culturally conservative, I think, but not necessarily Christian right. And I think that's already happening. Perry, on something that I think is so crucial that we have only begun to really conceptualize, which is the religious right was a top-down movement. I mean, it was orchestrated by guys like Paul Weyrich and Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson using denominational networks to activate people at the local level to turn out and vote. So denominations were very strong in the 1990s. So you could use the Southern Baptist Convention because they existed everywhere in this country in the 1990s. But like we talked about, we're seeing a decline in the number of denominational evangelicals, and we're seeing a dramatic increase in the number of non-denominational evangelicals. And it gets really, really hard to communicate to these non-denominational churches because by very definition, they are not top-down. They are bottom-up. So if you're a Republican politician trying to run in a state or let's say nationally, you can't go to the Southern Baptist Convention and talk to a million or two million people all at once, you've got to go to this church that has 15,000 and that church has 8,000 because there's no networks that connect them anymore. And surely what's happened with the evangelicalism in in this country is it's gone from top down to bottom up and it's a lot harder to organize to get these people in line when they're a bottom up. And actually, there's some evidence now that one of the reasons that we got Donald Trump was because we lost that top down structure that we had 20 or 30 years ago even Falwell and Robertson, those guys, probably would have not backed Donald Trump if they were still alive. They would, they would have picked another candidate. But because those guys don't exist anymore, it's all bottom up. And the bottom of the, the evangelical, the bottom up, the rank and file are incredibly conservative. Over 55% of white evangelicals in this country today want to reduce legal immigration to this country by 50%. of them favored the family separation policy of the Trump administration. So taken together, they're way more conservative than even what the religious right was 20 or 30 years ago. And I think in some ways, no one speaks for white evangelicalism anymore. It's all just these islands that are all working kind of in concert, but not really sometimes in a disorganized way to get out the vote. And that's one of the reasons that Donald Trump was the nominee and not a more establishment candidate like Cruz or Rubio, who would have been the nominee, I think, 20 years ago. This is a complicated question, but why do political and religious identity overlap so much? And it's also a kind of chicken or egg question, which is that does people's religious tradition inform how they behave politically or do other fundamental characteristics like race or maybe even education or income or age more define their political behavior, but then also graft onto their religious identity. You probably can't separate the two as perfectly as this question might suggest, but where are the boundaries between like why we can talk about white evangelicals? Okay, they're all voting for Republicans. You know, Jews at 80, 90%, they're voting for Democrats. Okay, black Protestants at the same levels, they're voting for Democrats. Like why is there so much overlap between religious identity and political views? So we used to assume that religion was like sort of the first cause and politics was downstream from that. Like that's what the literature always assumed for decades because it made sense, right? Like we're taught to have, you know, I'm a pastor. We teach our people to have a biblical worldview, right? Like see the world like Jesus would. So it makes sense that politics is downstream of that. But 
There's been some recent work. Michelle Margolis' book, From Politics to the Pews, really laid this out, I think, really well in a couple pieces recently using really good panel data that shows that people now are sorting their religion based on their politics. So they're actually picking a church that matches their political persuasion more so than they're picking a church based on the theological positions of that church. And that's something we've never seen before. It's almost like politics has become the first cause, and then everything is sort of downstream from that in our lives now. And we're actually seeing that in terms of, you know, sorting things out. One of the big things I've been writing about a lot recently is this idea of who are self-identified evangelicals. And self-identified evangelicals, you know, we ask you two separate questions. What are you, your religious tradition? And then we ask you, do you consider yourself to be evangelical? The share of people who never attend church or seldom attend church but also identify as evangelical has gone from 16% to 25%. So now we're seeing never attending church evangelicals. And people are like, you can't be that. And I'm like, yeah, you can because people are beginning to understand that evangelical is not a religious or theological identifier anymore. It's become a cultural and political identifier. So to be a Republican is to be an evangelical and to be a Democrat is to not be an event, whether it be being a Muslim or being a nun or being a Jew or whatever it is. It's like the public is figuring out that there's a religious divide in this country and it lays on top the political divide. And I think the evidence is sort of mounting now that politics is causing all those things to happen much more than the religion's causing it to happen. It's worth noting, like historically, the black church denominations, the black church as an entity was started as a kind of alternative to white churches who were viewed as being insufficiently concerned, going back to even opposing slavery or opposing Jim Crow. So black churches have kind of always been political. And a lot of the evangelical, white evangelical movements started in the wake of Brown v. Board of Education. Some churches started then. That was part of the movement. A part of the movement started after Roe v. Wade. So the fact that white evangelical churches are very Republican is kind of a feature of what they've always been. The fact that black churches are kind of aligned with black political causes is a feature of what they've always been. So in that way, church has always been political. Where I think is changing is that in the sort of outside of those two is that Increasingly, a lot of people who used to be Democrats and Christian, they've come to view Christianity, white Democrats who were once Christian, they've came to believe that being a Christian means being a Republican, and they're not a Republican. So they're moving away from Christianity. And as Ryan said, you've also seen some Republicans who were before different kinds of Christians are saying, now I'm evangelical because evangelical and be a Republican are the same thing. So you're seeing an alignment of religion and politics that was unusual where in some ways religion is following politics, as Ryan was said, but also religion was always connected to politics. And so that some of that is already sort of endemic to the structure. In 1976, 50% of white weekly churchgoers were Democrats. So that's Catholics and Protestants, 50% and 35% were Republicans. And now it's 50% of Republicans and 25% are Democrats. The church has never been so politically divided as it is, you know, in the last 50 years at least, as it is right now, because basically to be white and Christian and devout, to be white, you know, who goes to church once a week, is to be a Republican more and more. And even amongst moderate denominations like the United Methodists. They're becoming more Republican over time too. So really this fusion between white Christianity and Republicanism is only growing stronger over time. And I think it's casting out a lot of moderates who are becoming religiously unaffiliated because they just cannot fit in with increasingly conservative churches. 
In reading your book, there are lots of charts that help conceptualize all of this data that we're talking about. And you see that as you chart religious traditions over time in America, a lot of the religious traditions you've seen a little bit of decline, but are relatively stagnant. That's the case amongst Catholics. That's the case amongst Black Protestants, Jews, things like that. But then when you look at mainline Protestants, you just see the numbers of Americans affiliated with that religious tradition cratering at the same time you see the religiously unaffiliated people really rising. In this chart, it basically looks like an X. So I'm wondering, did mainline Protestants all just become religiously unaffiliated? Did they filter out to different religions and that's why those religions didn't decline so much? Like what is going on with mainline Protestantism in America? So it was 30% of America in 1976 and it's 10% today and it's on track to be 5% by 2030. The average mainline Protestant is almost 60 years old now. I mean, the Episcopal Church will probably be half the size it is today in 10 years because only 15% of Episcopals have children at home. I mean, there are some staggeringly bad numbers for mainline Protestants because they used to be sort of the upper educated, more sophisticated type of Christian. I call them polite Christians because they're not going to tell you you're going to hell, but they're going to go to church once or twice a month, and they're going to help out with the food pantry. You know, it's like the social thing to do. But unfortunately, what's happened is a lot of them were driven out in the 1990s is really when evangelicalism hit its peak. It got almost to 30% in 1993, and that was really you know, a confluence of events. That was when abortion became a national issue. The Summer of Mercy happened in 1990, 1991, where abortion became sort of a national talking point when it wasn't really before that. But the other thing that happened, Newt Gingrich, Contract with America, 1994, Falwell Robertson, televangelism hit its peak. And evangelicals are very good about telling you what it means to be a Christian and what it means to not be a Christian. And they looked at a lot of mainline Protestants and said, you guys aren't really Christians. You know, you don't really belong here because you don't believe all the things that we believe about, you know, the virgin birth and the little resurrection and women can't be pastors and things like this. And so a lot of Methodists, you know, or Episcopalians who are moderate said, you know what? I'm sick of trying to be lumped in with the Falwells and the Robertsons and the Evangelicals and the Jim Bakers. I really don't like church that much anyway, so I'm out. I'm leaving. It's easier to become a nun. I don't have to get up on Sunday to go to church. I don't have to worry about dropping money in the donation box. So it's just easier to be a nun. That's part of it. But here's really where religious change is happening. It's generational replacement. Older generations who are more religious are dying off. And remember, mainliners are old, so they're dying off rapidly. And they're not being replaced with many young mainline Protestants. So if you look at, for instance, 18 to 25-year-olds, when they come into adulthood, it used to be about 10% of them were nuns, and today it's over 30% of them are nuns. So what's happening is kids are just being raised nuns now. So there's a lot less switching, I think, than just replacement, where people just are raised with no religious tradition. And I think the other thing that we haven't even thought about is, what do we do when we have second and third generation families who are nuns all the way back to the grandparents? We've really never seen that on a large scale before. And what we know is retention is really hard to break. So the nun's retention used to be about 30% of people who raised nun would stay nun as adult. Now it's about 70%. So what we're going to see is a lot more solidifying, I think. And the nuns are going to grow because people who are born nuns are going to be stay nuns as they become adults. So with the main line, some of them became evangelicals, a small portion. A lot of them became nuns, but then a lot of them just died off and were replaced by less and less religious people who came into adulthood with just less attachment to any religion at all, mainline Protestant or evangelical or anything else. 
One thing Ryan has said in the book that I think is important to emphasize is that we tell a story about people who are more liberal moving from church because of religious right. There's another story here, which is that generally societies, countries, Europe, for example, that have high education levels and high income levels are not particularly religious. And so America is also having a lot more people with college degrees and master's degrees. And we've been a high income country for a long time. But it may have been an inevitable course that America would be more a-religious the way Europe is. And and we're sort of catching up to that course anyway. So there may be a story here that's kind of less about culture dynamics and just more about like education and just generally we're sort of a European founded country on some level and we're catching up to that. And so my sense is, and I'll be curious what Ryan thinks, is we might get up in 10 years and what we have is black and Latino people will go to church more, I think generally, so separate them out. But we might end up with like white churches that are non-denominational but really are just full of Republicans and then white Democrats who don't attend church at all and are call themselves nuns, atheists, whatever, and then sort of a core group of black and Latino people who, some of whom are nuns but some of whom attend church. And I think that's where we're headed is a world in which there aren't a ton of white Democrats go to church and there are a lot of white Republicans who still do go to church and there aren't a lot of churches that have white Democrats and white Republicans in them at all. That's really, I think, the biggest story is that If you're a white Christian liberal, especially in rural or suburban America, there's really no church for you anymore. I mean, unless you want to go to church with people who are 75 years old, the Episcopalians who are declining rapidly, and even the United Methodists who were the second largest denomination are actually going to split in the next couple of years over the issue of gay marriage, and the conservatives are probably going to take a big hunk of them. So it's fascinating to me that two-thirds of Americans are in favor of same-sex marriage right now, but you cannot find a church in most rural counties in America that would do a same-sex wedding. I mean, there's just such a huge divide, cultural divide over social issues, but also cultural issues. And what we're seeing, I think also, and this is also a part of the story, is we're seeing a lot of education, like Perry talked about, secularization comes with education. But even people who do get educated leave rural areas and go to suburban and urban areas, and a lot of them don't get attached to a religious tradition there, right? So the people who stay, stay in the church they grew up in, people who leave don't ever get reattached to the church and often are moderates or liberals. So it's a trope, right? The idea that rural America is Christian America, but it's becoming increasingly true over time that to be a white Christian in rural America is to be a Republican. And I don't see anything turning that around. Actually, I think I see it accelerating, if anything, over the last five years. I think people are like, well, Donald Trump is going to turn off white evangelicals or he's going to turn people off to Christianity. The share of Americans who self-identify as evangelical is the same today as it was 12 years ago. So he has not hurt evangelicalism as a brand at all. However, like we talked about, they are less religious, but they're still about 24, 25% of the population, and they're still incredibly Republican and actually more Republican today than they were even a decade ago. So it's really, it's having this sort of purifying aspect where the people who are left are even more Republican, the people who weren't left a long time ago and went to become something else. Right. I think that happens oftentimes with a group identity as you see yourself as more of an outsider or a smaller group, the group identity becomes even stronger, even if you're saying that the actual levels of religiosity overall have declined. Religion has, in many ways, served as an organizing structure or principle for uh, American life for a long time, and as we've mentioned, politics. As America becomes less religious, what do we structure our society and politics around? Like, does politics become its own religion? 
Are there other secular institutions or organizations that come into play? I lived in Madison for a while, Madison, Wisconsin. They actually had a Freedom From Religion Foundation, which, as you can imagine, it's like a very progressive white college educated town. So it fits the stereotypes of an atheist or an agnostic. But like, what becomes the organizing structure or principle for society and politics? This is less academic and more just kind of what I see. It feels to me like CrossFit gyms, yoga. <laughs> On the left, there's, all, there's sort of an exercise culture. Brunch. I'm totally serious. Or maybe brunch a little bit too, but yes. there's sort of an exercise culture on the left that's sort of taken over in urban areas and it often takes place on Sundays. You meet together. You meet the same people. I think that's part of it. I think some of the Twitter social justice reading Ibram Kennedy books. I think there's a religious aspect of that part of the left as well that I think people are getting motivated, getting energized, meeting each other, reading the same books, trying to push forward. And I think that's part of it as well. So I do think there's part of that. That's sort of the leftward thing that I see. On the right, I think there is still a fair amount of like church going as such. I'm not as certain as what's sort of replacing that. I live in a rural area. My county is 40,000 people. My town's 15,000. And it feels like Religion is still very strong here. Church going is still very much the norm here. But the other thing that's actually growing is sports, local sports, kids' sports, travel sports. Almost to have kids around here, you got to like travel two hours to go to a tournament every weekend. And that's almost become sort of some weird, weird like pseudo community for a lot of these parents. Their kids will play all these different sports and that'll tie them together. But I think we are just beginning to understand like the impact that social media is having everywhere in this country, but especially in small towns. Like Facebook is so, so influential in small towns in America when you have the mayor or the coroner or the sheriff posting things, political things on Facebook all the time. I think that in some ways organizes these groups in some sort of weird way that sort of replaces religion in a lot of ways. And I think rural America is becoming even more fragmented too, by the way. I think the idea of being urban and lonely because you live in an apartment by yourself, urban America is doing that, but also rural America is doing that. And as, as religion declines, it has to be replaced by something. You know, people are like, oh, I'll be so happy when religion's gone in America. But my thought is, do you think it's not going to be replaced by something that's not as bad, if not worse? Then religion, I mean, Europe has not solved all its problems because it threw off religion in the post-war period. It's just replaced them with other things. The thing is, religion is just a totem for lots of other things going on in society. And whether it be race or whether it be gender or whether it be ethnicity or whether it be politics, those divisions, human beings are very good about creating us versus them. And whether it's Catholic versus Protestant or Republican versus Democrat— we are always going to find ways to separate ourselves into different groups. And the decline of religion is just letting these other things, I think politics is chief among them, rise up and take on even more prominence in the lives of the average American that it didn't even have 20 years ago. And I think there are some dangers to the decline of religion, as Ryan's getting it. It's like black churches have been a pillar of communities where people, you know, get food, they get support, they get so on. So there's very big uses for that. White evangelical churches have traditionally had refugee programs. They've supported people. Like if you have a child and you need support. So churches are actually an institution that have been helpful for a lot of people for generations. Obviously, they create division as well. But I think where does that go and where are the institutions that can help you if you need help and what do those look like is a real question. And also, and there was a famous book a few years ago called Bowling Alone and also just this churches do provide a sense of community and bowling leagues do too. And we are seeing a general fragmentation of institutions while people look on their YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook accounts for community. And I think we're going to see more studies showing why 
that's problematic. And I think it's already clear the fact that people believe so much misinformation is probably related to the fact that they're not bound to any institutions that have rules and norms and so on. So if church goes away, church provides food for people, clothes for people, it provides or, you know refugees places to go. If churches don't do that, who is going to step in the gap? I mean, atheist agnostics are growing rapidly. But I don't see them setting up social service organizations that work on a, even at a regional level or a state level. So how are they going to fill the gap? Do you want the government to fill the gap? And for atheist agnostics, a lot of them will say, yes, I do want the government to fill the gap. But for lots of Americans, they don't want more government in, involved in anything. So if church declines and the government doesn't step up, then what do we have? We have a society that has fewer social safety nets, not more. And I think that generally creates a worse outcome for all of us. I think we really need to think about the impact, the social impact that church has as much as the religious and theological impact. Yeah, I mean, are there any social or political advantages to a society becoming less religious? I know that's a weird question to ask a, a pastor, but obviously this is a pretty grim picture that we've painted of the direction that America is headed in. Does it have to be so? In the book I write about how secularization was basically inevitable, like globalization was inevitable. Politicians have been trying to hold back globalization for decades now with tariffs and artificial wage supports and subsidies and yada, yada, yada. And what do we get? We got more offshore and we got more globalization. No matter how hard you fight secularization, no matter how many giveaways your church does, no matter how many evangelistic events you guys do, you're still losing people. That's just a natural course of what secularization is going to do. I don't see anything that's going to be better with fewer churches in America, because right now I think a lot of people self-selected out of churches who were hurt by those. And by the way, I do not want to minimize at all the fact that churches have hurt people, especially the LGBT community, racial minorities, especially women in conservative churches. They've all been hurt by religion. But I think generally speaking at the aggregate level, religion does this thing called social capital, like Perry was talking about. The idea that we care about our neighbors, we care about our communities is something that church you know, helped us create. And there's just nothing in American society that replaces that in any meaningful way. And social media actually, I think, makes it worse in a lot of ways. So we're really, all these bridges that were built over the last 50, 75 years through churches are now slowly eroding and they're being replaced by nothing. So we're going to be all on islands that are disconnected from each other. And it's so much easier to be tribal if you don't know your neighbor, if you don't interact with them on a Sunday to Sunday basis. You don't see them as someone like you. You see them as someone different than you. That's not a good picture for the future of America. And unfortunately, I just do not see any social organization stepping in to kind of fill that gap. I do think some people who leave churches I've read, I've talked to, that were not fits for them because they were black or female or gay or they didn't fit in some other way. They have found other things, podcasts, other groups, yoga. Some For some people, church has not worked. So I think we should be very explicit about that it has worked in certain black communities. It has not worked for every black person. It has not worked for lots of white liberals. It has not worked for lots of people too. So I think that is important to say um, at the first. And the second part is in terms of politics, it seems to me, even though 2020 was a very close election and 2016 was as well, that a culture in which there's less religiosity is generally going to favor the Democratic Party. We're growing less religious and the Republican Party is trying to hold on to a religious tenor. It would seem to me that secularization is going to help the Democratic Party or 
at least force the Republican Party to be more left in order to win. It seems to me this is an advantage for the Democratic Party. And so that's kind of the politics of it. The societal part of it, like I was getting at, was that I think that there are some good elements to secularization for people who church did not work for. I think the question is like, when we look at the polls, it suggests there's a declining trust in media, in government, in the police, in churches, and so on. And how do we rebuild trust in some kinds of institutions and therefore trust in each other, I think is maybe not a question for the 538 podcast, but still like an important question about how we kind of rebuild trust. And it seems to me that if maybe churches have lost trust for too many people, we got to think about what institutions and what people we can build trust in. It's one of the downsides of a two-party system is the Democrats have to figure out how to keep black Protestants happy, but also atheists. Republicans have to figure out how to keep the Christian nationalists happy, but also maybe some moderate or even, you know, slightly right or center nuns. I mean, these are tough things we have to do going forward, but the nuns are the battlefield going forward. They're the growing demographic. They're not locked into one party or another. And both parties have a good opportunity, I think, to reach out to larger and larger shares of them as they grow. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ryan and Perry, for joining me today. This has been a really interesting and informative conversation. Thanks, Galen. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigary-Curtis is on audio editing. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.